Acts chapter 19. We should finish out that chapter this morning. And um, as we've been looking at the book of Acts, we are just going straight through. Over the last few weeks, we've seen Paul on his missionary journeys, the second and third missionary journeys. As he's traveled, he's gone to different places. He went to Athens, and we talked about evangelism and a culture of idolatry. He then went to Corinth, and we talked about evangelism and a culture of immorality. Last week, we saw him in Ephesus. Evangelism and a culture of insincerity. Well, today he's still in Ephesus, and we're going to look at evangelism and a culture of ignorance. It's uh, not politically correct to say things are ignorant, but we're going to do that today because uh, ignorance is infectious, and it seems to just grow and grow and grow. And I don't know if you at some point this week were watching the television and you said, that's just ignorant, right? Not to get on any soapbox or anything like that, but there are things that we see that we're like, man, that's just not smart. That is ignorant. And biblical ignorance is this, living outside the will of God. And we can look at a culture, we can say, man, that's just, that's just ignorant. I don't, I don't know why you came to, to the conclusion that this is okay. That just seems ignorant to me. My wife has a great saying, and this will help you understand ignorance. If you have one boy, you have one brain. If you have two boys, you have half a brain. If you have three or more boys in a room, no brain, right? And if you've ever raised boys or done youth ministry or anything like that, you know that to be true because all the boys will get in there and they'll go, you know what, this is a great idea. Let's do this. And you're like, you're going to blow your hand off. Like, what are you doing? This is not smart. So ignorance is infectious. And ignorance, as John Piper says, guarantees ungodliness. As the world has gone more and more against the will of God and the word of God, you've seen how it's been infectious and how more and more people are beginning to think, oh, this is okay, and this is okay, and this is okay. And we've also witnessed that the world has become more and more ungodly in the decisions that it's making. So we're going to real quick, before we jump into Acts, what is living in a culture of biblical ignorance? What is it? Well, number one, it's living in a culture that is making decisions from a calloused conscience, a sensual, greedy desire, and an impure motive that is driven by a hard heart. There's a lot there, right? But let me kind of unpack that. A culture that is walking away from the will of God, biblical ignorance, begins to make decisions based on, number one, a calloused conscience. This means the decisions are being made where there is no conviction where there is no guilt, where there is no, well, I I feel bad about that. That is becoming callous. That's becoming hard-hearted. It's making decisions based on a sensual, greedy desire. Well, this feels good. This has to be right. I, I think you should approve of it because I approve of it. Sensual, greedy desire and an impure motive. And can I tell you what the most impure motive is? Selfishness over righteousness. It's glorifying self over glorifying a Savior. Well, I'm making this decision because it benefits me. This is right for me. This is a culture of biblical ignorance. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24. It should be on the screen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the, there's the word, ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous 
and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church, the culture that we're about to read about, it's a culture of ignorance. And he's writing to them, and he's writing to the Christians there, and he's saying, listen, you should no longer participate in the things that your culture is participating in. You should no longer base your decisions upon a calloused conscience. You should no longer base your decisions based on greedy, sensual desires. You should no longer base your decisions on impure motives from a hard heart. Your way of life should look completely different than the life of the culture that you live in. My question is, is that the same call for the church today? Is the church called to live with pure motives? The church today should no longer live like the surrounding culture that it's in. It should no longer live in blatant ignorance. In fact, Christians who live culturally make decisions from a callous conscience a sensual, greedy desire, and an impure motive that is driven by a hard heart. I say that to say there are, there are believers, Christians, who claim Christ, yet their decisions are all from a callous conscience. They no longer feel guilty about the sins in, that are in their life. They're making sensual, greedy uh, decisions based on their, their own feelings. Well, it just feels right. And an impure heart. They are making Decisions from an impure motive. And that, basically, is hypocritical Christianity. Hypocritical Christianity. As John Calvin said it, since we are all naturally prone to hypocrisy, an empty semblance of righteousness is quite enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. That's a deep, deep thought from John Calvin, right? But here's what John Calvin's saying. We're naturally prone to hypocrisy. We're naturally driven to just say, you know what, this semblance of righteousness, that's enough, and I'll take the counterfeit over the real thing. And the real thing is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And what we do is we substitute Jesus Christ and his righteousness in our life for a substitute, which is called religion. You know what, this looks good. I think I'll put this on, but it's not the real thing. I think I'll wear this for a little bit. It's hypocritical Christianity. He says hypocrites wish to have God as they were bound to them as it were bound to them, and at the same time remain themselves free to have full liberty to live a wicked life. Here's what John Calvin says. Hypocrites wish to have God do for them what they want and then go ahead and do all the things that they continue to do like the world does. I want God to do for me what I need him to do. I want God to do for me what I need. I want blessings. I want freedoms. I want happiness. I want eternal security. All the while, I want to live like the world does. I mean, is that, is that a culture of ignorance? I want God to bless me. I want God to make me happy. I want God to give me this. I want God to give me this. I want God to give me this. And I want eternal security. But I also want to live however I want to live based on a callous conscience, greedy desires, Improper motives, that is hypocritical 
Christianity. And Paul would say, as he said to the Ephesians, that's not the way you learned Christ. The second thing we can see is that living in a culture of biblical ignorance is, it's living in a culture that believes ignorance is overlooked by loving God and is hostile to the fact that they are under God's judgment and should repent. It's living in a culture that believes, you know what? God's a loving God, and he's going to overlook that sin. He's going to overlook that decision. He's going to say it's okay because he loves me just the way I am, for the Bible tells me so, right? And they are then hostile to the fact when we point out the fact that God calls us to repentance. He calls us to a life of godliness, a life of holiness. Oh, you can't tell me that. You're judgmental. A few weeks ago, we looked at Acts 17, 30 and 31. He said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here's what Paul says. He says, look, the times of ignorance, the times of making these decisions apart from the will of God, God overlooked. Not that he was saying they were okay, but the fact that he was waiting on the timeline for Jesus Christ to come into the scene. And now that Jesus Christ has come into the scene, you are without excuse. There is repentance that is required of us because we know the truth and we can no longer live in ignorance. And he says, you want to know? How we know this is for certain? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He rose from the grave. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, and there will be a day of judgment for all those who in ignorance choose to live an ungodly life. Do you know that ignorance is not an excuse for breaking the law? I mean, you can try it, right? You can, like, you can go 60 miles an hour down the 45 here, and when you get pulled over, you could, you could plead ignorance. You could be, ah, police officer, I am so sorry. I had no idea that the speed limit was 45. And the police officer's going to go, well, you had no idea? Well, by all means, just keep going. I mean, if you didn't know, this is my favorite excuse from kids, right? You get onto your kid, and what is your kid's first thing to say? But I didn't know. You didn't know? You didn't know? No, I didn't know. Well, then, Bob, you're not in trouble. Do you think it works? There is a time where we will stand under judgment, and there is no excuse of ignorance that's going to get us out of it. But I didn't know. You did know. You did know because God has placed eternity in your heart. He's shown you that by, by all the things that he's created in this world, that there is a God that we should submit to. And that's why we have the third one. What is biblical ignorance? What's the culture of biblical ignorance? It's living in a culture that simply is choosing to suppress the truth to not repent, and to embrace a lie. I mean, this is where our culture is. I've read this before. I'll read it again. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 22. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. There is a culture that has simply chosen to suppress the truth, to not repent, 
and to embrace a lie. You and I are without excuse. There is a world that points to a creator. There is a world that points to one who controls all things, who is sovereign over all things, who himself entered into humanity so that we could have life and have it everlasting. We are without excuse. And so we can't claim ignorance anymore. We can't claim that, oh, well, I didn't know. You see, we can go out here and we can, we can look at the trees, but they can't save us. They can't save us. We can't pray to trees. We can't pray to Mother Nature. We can't pray to a cosmic spirituality. No, there is a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could have life and have it everlasting. Yet, as R.C. Sproul puts it, yet every person by nature represses that knowledge of the true God and exchanges it for a lie by creating idols as substitutes for the true God. That propensity does not end with conversion. That strong drive within us to replace the living God with something more palatable to us remains even in the hearts and minds of the covered. Let that sink in for just a second, that those of us who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb still have a propensity to put our focus on things rather than on God, to worship idols in our ignorance, to claim them as ultimate and put God on the back burner of our hearts. We all are without excuse. And so as we turn back to the pages of Acts chapter 19, we're going to see how the city of Ephesus is in an uproar because of a worship of God that is disrupting their lives. It is going to cause some persecution. It's going to cause some hatred to take place. And as we enter into another time of prayer, I want you to see what G. Campbell Morgan says. The church persecuted has always been the church pure and therefore the church powerful. We pray for the persecuted church today. We pray for them because we hurt with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We hurt alongside them, but the church patronized has always been the church in peril, and very often the church paralyzed. In a culture of ignorance, oftentimes the church is paralyzed, paralyzed by the culture it's surrounded by, it looks to things rather than to God. And so as we pray, let's pray that God would awaken us to his truth and to his word and to his spirit and to his life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. God, we confess. There are things in our lives that we know should not be there and we repent. And God, we corporately gather today to worship you, to honor you, to glorify you. And we would ask that you would corporately speak to us by the reading of your word that the spirit that you've placed within us would become alive and active, that you would lead us towards repentance and you would lead us into a life that longs for righteousness, true righteousness found only in your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we love you. Speak to us this morning in Christ's name, amen. Number one, evangelism in a culture of ignorance exposes the idolatry of profit. So let's begin reading Acts 19, 21 through 27. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. 
For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. This is God's word. And about that time, there arose no little disturbance. Well, what was happening in Ephesus is where we left off last week. If you look back in verse 17, you can see that there is a revival that is hitting the town of Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. There's, there's an uproar coming because there are people coming and bringing books and things, and they're burning them in repentance. So he says this, starting verse 17, And this became known in all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. They were, he was worshipped. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So as we left off, now we see that there's this disturbance. There's a major disturbance taking place because the people of the way, the people who see Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and life, they have changed their way of life because they are people of the way, early Christians. They have changed their way of life so much that it's now having an economical impact on the community. They're burning their books. It became up to 50,000 pieces of silver. There is a lot of money there that's taking place, and the community is losing money because of the worship of God and not the worship of idols. And so there's a disturbance that is taking place. Repentance was changing the culture. Can I say that? Repentance among believers was changing the culture. Let me ask you, is our culture being changed by the repentance of the church today? The people of the way, they were burning their idols. They weren't having anything to do with them anymore. They were bringing them, they were getting rid of them. They were cutting themselves off from their old way of life because their new way of life, the people of the way, were going to follow Jesus Christ. And they were not going to be deterred in that. They were repentant and they were making sacrifices. Let me ask you, does the church today make sacrifices and repentance in such a way that is having an economical impact on the community? I don't see it. I don't see it. As John Piper said, Jonathan Pig sent me this quote this week. I love it. The problem with the church today is not that there are too many people who are passionately in love with heaven. Name three. The problem is not that professing Christians are retreating from the world, spending half their days reading scripture and the other half singing about the pleasures in God, all the while indifferent to the needs of the world. The problem is is that professing Christians are spending 10 minutes reading Scripture and then half their day making money and the other half enjoying and repairing what they spend it on. It is not heavenly-mindedness that hinders love. It's worldly-mindedness that hinders love, even when it's disguised as a religious routine on the weekend. 
Where is the person whose heart is so passionately in love with the promise to glory of heaven that he feels like an exile and a sojourner on the earth? Where is the person who has so tasted the beauty of the age to come that diamonds in the world look like baubles and the entertainment of the world is empty and the moral causes of the world are too small because they have no view of eternity? Where is that person? Where is the person for lack of a better term, that is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? Where's the person who is so caught up in repentance that their repentance is having an economical impact on the community around them? Where's the person who's so concerned with true righteousness that that mere religion just won't cut it anymore? A weekend routine is not going to be enough. I long for Jesus Christ and Him crucified in my life because there is nothing good in me. And apart from Jesus, I am failing. I could never keep the law on my own. There is nothing in me that can hold hold on. Apart from Jesus Christ, I am hopeless and I am helpless. And the people of Ephesus were getting it. And they were bringing their old way of life and they were burning it. And they were saying, I want nothing to do with this because Jesus Christ is greater. Where's the church today that brings the filth of their life and lays it on the altar and says, I want nothing to do with this because Jesus Christ is greater. If the church would be like that, then I would guarantee you that there would be an impact on the community around us. There would be a world that took notice, man, these, these people aren't just going through a religious routine. These people are in love with Jesus and they don't even participate in the things we participate in anymore. They don't, they don't applaud it anymore. They don't, they don't say it's okay anymore. There was a man, verse 24, named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis and brought no little business to the craftsmen. Artemis, or also Diana, was the goddess of fertility. She was known also as the goddess of the hunt. Legend has it that Artemis fell down from, from Zeus or Jupiter. More than likely, there was a meteorite that fell in the area of Ephesus, and according to someone, it looked like a fertile woman. So they began to worship this meteorite. They began to say, this, this is how we get fertility. This is how we get profit. This is how we get success. This is what satisfies us the most. So great is Artemis in our culture, in our world. This temple of Diana or temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the Parthenon that was in Athens. It was constructed of 127 pillars, and each pillar was 60 feet tall. Amazing. Amazing worship taking place here. And all of their economy and all of their world revolved around the worship of Diana. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen and similar trades and said, Men, You know that from this business, we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned many, a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may may come to disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. And that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. Now, the worship of Artemis was renowned. It was throughout the entire Asian region. 
And so these men like this would make little shrines and little idols out of, out of silver, and people could buy those. It was like going and, and you know, like you go to, uh, I, like this is going to sound bad, but it's like going to Disney World, and you're like, oh, my goodness, let's get a little Mickey Mouse and take them home and put them on the, you know, like this is great. And so they were, they were taking all of these things, and they were worshiping them. They were creating a little idol uh, worship in their own homes. And this was how they made their money. But the worship of God was affecting the bottom line. Man, we need to have a meeting. You, you and I both know that this Paul, he's gone through almost all of Asia telling people that idols made by hands are not really God's. And if people start to believe that, it's going to affect our bottom line. And, and pretty much this giant temple that we have is going to be nothing. It's not going to matter to anything. Albert Muller says this, In a post-Christian world, there will sometimes be no way for the gospel and society to peacefully coexist. And the backlash from the society might be fierce, particularly when the gospel threatens livelihoods. Jesus made no, no qualms about it when he said that it will cost you to follow him. The people in Ephesus were bringing the things from their past and getting rid of them. In Luke chapter 14, 25 through 27, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying, look, in comparison, there should be no other loves in your life that are greater than your love of Jesus Christ. And if there are greater loves in your life, you can't be my disciple. It will cost you to follow Christ. And it was costing not only these early Christians, but it was beginning to cost the economy in Ephesus. The second thing I want you to see is evangelism, a culture of ignorance, exposes the idolatry of pride. Pick up verse 28. 334. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, who, was the, Jew, who the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried with one voice, Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, I don't know what happened there to Alexander. I don't know if he was standing in a line full of Jews and all the Jews except for him took one step back and he was like, oh, but they put him forward, right? And when he went forward, the chaos ensued. There was a giant riot that took place inside this auditorium. This auditorium still stands today somewhat and it held 25,000 people. This is no small gathering. The entire community is coming together in, in a riot, in, for lack of a better term, a mob mentality. There's a mob mentality. We don't have to get into 
things that we saw last year and all, all that, but we understand what a mob mentality is because all of a sudden there's chaos that ensues. All of a sudden there's a lot of people gathered together who are passionate about something, but the truth is a lot of them in the crowd don't even know what they're passionate about. They're just passionate about being part of the crowd. It's a mob mentality. And so they were all filled with confusion and they rushed together to this theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Verse 32, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. This crowd was passionate. They were passionate about the protest, but not really about the, the reason. They were passionate about being part of it. They just wanted to be there, shouting, part of the crowd. And for hours, two hours, it says, they cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So for lack of a better term, this crowd came together as an assembly for a two-hour-long worship service. Now, you guys, two hours? Yeah, two hours. That's a long worship service. There was probably some hype in there. There might have been crowd surfers. I don't know what was going on. But there was a worship service, and that worship service was not to God. It was to a goddess. But most importantly, it says, of the Ephesians. This was a worship of, for lack of a better term, national pride. This is who we are. This is what we do. And no outsiders are going to change that. Nobody's going to come in with something else. No, this is who we are. We are passionate about this. The mob mentality today gathers in worship of pride. It even grabs believers and it drags them into the crowd, beating them over the head with their message. What we do is right, and we don't need you getting in the way. This is exactly what's happened. Hey, we're going to drag these Christians. We're going to drag these people who are with Paul and we're going to point our fingers at them, and we're going to shout for two hours that this is what we do, this is who we are, and you need to get out of the way, even if you disagree. Listen, when the church engages in a community and a culture of ignorance, there's going to be a mob mentality against the believers because, look, you're standing in our way of what we have pride in. I don't need to get into details. I think we can all read between the lines of what I'm saying. That there's a, there's a mob mentality when it comes to the culture we live in. Third thing is this. Evangelism and a culture of ignorance exposes the idolatry of passiveness. Pick in verse 35 through 41. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the, court, the courts are open and there are pro councils. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause 
that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. What an interesting turn of events. A guy comes in and he says, Shh, everybody just, everybody just calm down, right? Everybody take a breath. What are we doing here? We all need to settle down. And really he's saying, listen, if you get charged with rioting, the Romans are coming in. Because they're going to they're gonna put things back in order. So we don't want that. We will handle things civilly. We will all calm down. And, mas- and basically he says, look, I want, I want to reassure you. Everyone knows about Artemis. Everyone knows about the temple. Everyone knows about the meteorite. We, we have nothing to fear here. Don't worry about these believers getting in the way of what we do. Don't worry about that. Just, just go back. Go back to your business, go back to what you do, and calm down. It's a culture, it's a voice of the culture that says, don't let Christianity get in the way of what our culture calls acceptable. Don't, shh, don't get riled up. Don't let Christianity get in the way of what we call acceptable. Don't let, and don't let your Christianity, is what they would say to us as believers, don't let your Christianity get in the way of what we call acceptable. Let's just all calm down and try to agree. And this is what this man's voice was. This man's voice was a passive voice that tries to get rid of conviction, tries to get rid of any controversy, and let everyone go back to their lives as normal. It reminds me of the voice of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and wants to keep you living in darkness. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes this in verses 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Paul's saying, don't listen any longer to the voice that says, shh, don't get riled up. Don't let Christianity get in the way. Go along with what the culture says. No, we have been saved by grace. But God, rich in his mercy, has sent his son to pay the price on our behalf so that we can have life and everlasting. And when we get a hold of that, it changes everything. And when it changes everything, it's going to affect everything around us. The church needs to be affected by the gospel. The gospel has got to change us first on the inside before we can ever change the world on the outside. The church was making a disturbance here in Ephesus, and Paul reminds them, don't listen to the wrong voice. Listen to the voice of conviction. Listen to the voice that leads you towards righteousness, leads you towards his word. Don't make decisions based off a seared conscience, a callous conscience. Don't make decisions based off greedy, sensual desires. Don't make decisions based off of what are impure motives from a hard heart. Make decisions based off the gospel of Jesus Christ. The voice of the enemy tries to get us to go back to sleep tries to get us to not listen to Scripture. As Tim Keller says it now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility 
and crosses your will, if you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a God, essentially, of your own making. And not a God with whom you can have a relationship of genuine interaction, only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of personal relationship with God. It is the, prediction, it is the precondition for it. We need to be offended. We need to see that God is exposing the things in our life that shouldn't be there. It should lead us into repentance because repentance changes a culture. Repentance has an impact on the economy. Repentance changes people. But sometimes we have the voice that comes in, shh, don't get, don't get riled up. Don't get offended. Don't get convicted. You just go back to your way of life. As I close, I want to close in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 15. There's a documentary, as I was studying this week, that I was reminded of. And it's called Sheep Among Wolves, Volume 2. It's about the Iranian regime and how it's losing control with their Iranian people because of the sweeping movement of women who are following Jesus Christ. The mission director tells of a Christian couple who had the opportunity to come to the U.S., After several months, the wife began to beg her husband to go back to Iran. When he asked her why would she give up her religious freedom here and return to a persecuted Iran, she responded, there is a satanic lullaby here, and all the Christians are sleepy, and I am starting to feel sleepy. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For one time... You were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. We live in a culture of ignorance, so be careful how you walk. The fear that I have is the mob mentality danger. The mob mentality we often think is out there, but sometimes the mob mentality is in here. Confusion. I know we're supposed to be here. I don't really know why I'm here. I just know that this is what I do on Sundays. Why are you here? I can tell you, we're not here to check off a box for worship. We're not here to be a better person. We're not here because this is what's done in a Christian culture. We're not here to get on God's good side. We're here to allow the word of God to show us the idolatry 
that is in our lives. We're here to let the word of God reveal to us the ignorance and the decisions that we make, the idols of possessions, the idols and the love of profit, of pride, and of pleasures. We're here to let God expose all of those and show us how we've allowed those to sometimes dethrone the Holy One from the seat of our heart and to repent. Because repentance not only changes us, it changes our world. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we come to you. We ask God that you would move in our hearts today, that you would lead us towards repentance, that you would cause us to fix our eyes on you and you only, and that we would long for righteousness. We would long for Jesus Christ above all other things in this world. God, this morning, as we sit here, help us to focus on you. If there's anything in our lives that we've allowed to be in our hearts and in our lives, Lord, we would bring those and we would lay them before you today. We would repent of those things. We would burn those things and we would walk away from those things because we no longer want to walk in our old self, but we want to walk in newness of light. Father, we would ask that the light of your gospel, the light of your presence would shine into the darkest areas of our heart and reveal to us the areas that we've allowed to push you off the throne. Father, we ask, God, that you would make us a people so passionate for you that it affects the culture and the community around us. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand? Will you respond?